Well, good morning. And thank you all for being here at yet another gathering for Christ's Covenant Fellowship on this beautiful Sunday. For those that may be visiting that may not know me, uh, my name is Brandon Reed and I am the associate pastor here at Christ's Covenant Fellowship. <clears throat> Would love to get to know you before you get out of here. Would love to catch up with you if you want to know more about What's happening here in the life of our church, you could speak to one of our members, find myself, Pastor Gabe. Uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Tyler, is actually not here this week. Uh, he is heading out on vacation with his family. So if you would, uh, be praying for him this week that this would be a time of rest uh, for him and his family, a sweet time of fellowship for them to really uh, just get away and enjoy each other and kind of be rejuvenated. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Amos chapter 3. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, walking through the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and this has been a really wonderful study thus far. Hey, listen, if you've maybe missed one of those sermons, check out our Spotify page, Christ Covenant Fellowship. We have a Spotify page where we list all of our sermons. Again, this has been a great study for me personally. I certainly hope that uh, the Word of God would be a blessing to you as well. Uh, so this morning we'll be in Amos chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses. So what I want to do is just read these verses, and then I will pray and ask God to bless our time this morning through the preaching of his word. Amos chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it is once again we have gathered together to sing your praises. God, we are thankful for this opportunity. God, as I share from your word, as I preach through this text this morning, God, I ask that you would be at work that your spirit would be in this place doing what only you can do, opening our hearts and our ears and our eyes to receive the truth of this word, of this text. God, that you would do the work of bringing the lost to salvation, of changing hearts, drawing sinners to repentance. Father, unless you move, unless you intervene during this time, my speaking is useless. So God, I ask that you would do an incredible and miraculous work in and through me this morning. 
and that Christ Jesus would be glorified. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Holy, holy, holy as the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm sure most of us in here are familiar with this declaration from Isaiah chapter 3. Remember the vision of the prophet Isaiah, the scene that takes place within God's throne room as he's surrounded by these angelic beings who continually sing the praises of this thrice holy God. You see, the Bible consistently reminds us of the reality that God is holy. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? You see, when the Bible says that God is holy, this really speaks to God's otherness. The fact that God is just altogether different. This is referring to God's worth, his perfection. We have to remember that God is a God that is set apart, a God like no other. A God who is unlike anything or anyone in all of existence. And as the people of God, those that have been saved and set apart, we too are called to be holy. You see, through this written and revealed word, through the holy scriptures, God consistently challenges us as believers to a life of holiness. Just a few examples, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but just a few. Uh, Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I think the point is clear. God is concerned about the holiness and the purity of his people. There's an expectation amongst God's people to conduct ourselves in a particular fashion to live in a manner that sets us apart from the rest of the world and ultimately speaks to the divine glory of our God. But the Bible doesn't simply remind us of this exhortation to holiness, but the Bible takes great care to inform us that a holy, righteous, and just God must look upon sin and punish it. It's one of the realities that we find from the Scriptures is that God, who is holy, this just and righteous judge cannot excuse or pardon sin. If God were to look upon sin and let it pass over and excuse it, he would be defying his very nature, his own divine character. Now, from what we've read in Amos 2 and, and some of the study we've done over the past couple of weeks, we certainly understand that Israel's neighbors, those outside of the benefits of the Lord's covenant promises, we understand that they will face punishment and judgment. But the question for us becomes this, as the people of God, those who are set apart for God's good pleasure, can we too face the displeasure and the anger 
of God. As those chosen for redemption and restoration, are we still subject to God's punishment? Now, if we're speaking of God's eternal punishment and judgment, then I would answer that question with the resounding no, right? And we'll go to Romans 8.1, reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And praise God for that reality this morning. That in Christ Jesus, we are eternally secure. Amen? Amen. In him, we are forever recipients of God's grace, of his favor, of his love. Now, although that speaks to our eternal reality, we must also understand that even as God's people, as sinful human beings in covenant relationship with him, we are still capable of facing his anger, his displeasure. We are still subject to God's punishment and reprove. See, last week when we looked at chapter 2, we saw God proclaim the guilt of his people for their continued transgressions. And as we look at the text before us today, we'll find that God, through his prophet Isaiah, not only continues this indictment of his people, but he pronounces judgment. He warns them of a punishment that is to come. So what I want to do with the time we have together this morning is I want to look at three things, right? I have three major points that I want to make. Now, there'll be some what I'll call sub-points along the way, a couple of observations under each of these categories that we'll look at. But I have essentially three points that we'll use for an outline this morning. Excuse me. And number one, the first thing we'll look at is that God has the right to punish his people. God has the right to punish his people. Number two, God has the ability to punish his people. God has the ability. And number three, God has reasons to punish his people. That's essentially what we'll work through as we study these texts this morning. So number one, God has the right to punish his people. Let's look at chapter three, verse one. And it begins, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Now, that's a great place for us to just stop right there. A great place for us to pause and remember that this is the word of the Lord. It says this word that the Lord has spoken to you. This is the sovereign ruler and creator of all things. These are not the words of Amos. These are not the words of a man. This is Yahweh, the Lord God, speaking to the nation of Israel. That's a stark reminder that the Lord is speaking here, and that should prompt the nation of Israel and us as readers and hearers of this word to pay close attention to these words. Again, this is the giver and sustainer of life, the just and righteous judge speaking. His words should carry an eternal weight. Israel Israel ought to receive these words with reverence, with awe, with fear. Verse 1 again said, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. So who is the Lord speaking to? He's speaking to the people of Israel, the whole nation, both southern and northern kingdoms. And this is a people that enjoyed a special and unique relationship with God. They knew this Yahweh God, the Lord of all creation, the ruler of heaven and earth. They knew him in a personal and an intimate fashion. 
And I believe this was the great folly of Israel because they assumed that being God's people excluded them from punishment or discipline. Here we are reminded that God had brought this group of people up out of Egypt. This is God referencing the Exodus, his great deliverance of his people. See, he had brought them out of slavery and and captivity. He had seen the plight of his people. He had heard their cries. And God, this great and glorious Savior that is God, he had acted on their behalf. He had delivered his people in the most miraculous manner, freeing them from captivity, guiding them into this promised land. So here's God basically saying, remember what I have done. Consider how I have provided for you. And again, this is a great place for us to stop right here, to just pause and reflect, to remember all that God has done. And maybe you're sitting in that seat this morning, you're like, man, I can't really think of a lot. My life's been a struggle. A lot of hard times, a lot of adversity, a lot of difficulty. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, thank God for all that he's done through his perfect son. You can at least give him thanks and praise for that. Are we like the Israelites who quickly forget all of God's wonderful and loving providence? Do we have short memories? We too been guided through the wilderness and been beneficiaries of God's great providence only to forget and turn to all of these other things, to bow to these idols, to grumble and complain continuously, forgetting what God has brought us through. Let us be a people that are continuously reminded of God's loving favor and his deliverance most beautifully displayed to us at the cross in Christ Jesus. You see, the nation of Israel was in a wonderful position. They enjoyed great privilege as the people of God. They were God's family. In fact, in verse 2, it tells us that Israel was chosen exclusively among all the families, among all the people of the earth. The Lord says, you only have I known. Now, the Hebrew word that's used there for known indicates a deep and intimate fellowship. It refers to being greatly acquainted with another individual, like a husband and wife would know each other. So God says to the nation of Israel that you and only you have I known in this way, out of all of the nations on earth, out of all of the people, I chose you. See, as God's people, as his family, they had this unique and exclusive relationship with the Lord because they were privileged to be in this covenant union with God the Father. See, God chose them not because they were so great, not because they were so numerous, not because of their great status, but all by his gracious and loving sovereign election. See, this doctrine of election being chosen by God should have led Israel to a place of humility. In fact, it should be the same for us. That should be our posture today is a posture of humility. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been saved by his blood, you've been born again, then God has graciously chosen you to be amongst his people, to be a beneficiary of his love and favor And that is not a result of anything that you have done. 
It isn't because God somehow looked through the annals of time and saw that you'd have these wonderful accomplishments or how great and awesome you would be. It's not because of your political decisions. It's not because of your ethnicity. It's not because of your status. It's not because of your job or anything else that you might bank on. It's all by God's grace. He chose you. He chose you before the beginning of time. And that's a great demonstration of God's grace. His gracious and loving election should move us to a place of humility. See, but for the Israelites, rather than being compelled to humility, they arrogantly assumed that they could live however they want, free of consequence. That's why they bowed to these idols. That's why they turned from the Lord God. See, the unique relationship that Israel enjoyed as the people of God should have inspired humility and obedience and devotion. And in fact, it is that covenant relationship as his people that gives God the right to punish them. And not only does God have the right to punish, but he should punish them. His discipline is necessary. It's actually a very loving and good and gracious thing. To all the fathers in the room, to all the parents in the room, I think you understand this concept, right? Why disciplining your children is actually a good and loving thing to do. And all the parents in the room said, I hope they say amen, amen, right? You have to understand why discipline is loving. And we'll talk about this more in just a minute. If I see my children are making decisions that are detrimental to their health, to their future, to correct that behavior, and for them to turn around, I'm supposed to discipline them. If I let them continue down a path of death and destruction, then that's the most unloving thing that I could do. And if I can get that concept as an earthly father, as a sinful, flawed human being, how much more does God understand that concept? To discipline and correct his own. God disciplines those that he loves. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Or Job 5, 17 says, blessed is the one who reproves. You ever thought about God's discipline that way as a blessing? Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see God enacting this punishment upon his people, Israel, is a blessing to them. It is really him being accountable to the covenant that he had made with them. This covenant makes his punishment necessary. He must discipline the ones that he loves, lest he violate his own character. And again, this is a good and gracious and loving thing. And here's why. Because his punishment, the punishment of Israel, is meant to lead them back to him. It is meant as a tool of restoration. It is intended to lead them away from sin and death and back to this God that gives eternal life. That's the point of the discipline, to restore for you to turn around, to repent, right? God's discipline is loving. And in fact, even God warning his people here prior to sending calamity upon them, man, this is an act of God's love and favor as well. He has proclaimed his judgment against his people through this prophet 
Amos, and he's warned them of the punishment to come in hopes that they would repent, that they would turn from their sin and their idolatry and their corruption. You see, as his people, those who have entered into an eternal covenant with Creator God, Israel was subject to the Lord's discipline. He had the right to punish them. We would be foolish and naive if we think we cannot arise the ire of our Creator. We must not be so arrogant to think that we are deserving of some preferential treatment simply because we are eternally secure in Christ. Right? That would be like the child who thinks, oh, well, I'm daddy's favorite, so I can do whatever I want. It doesn't quite work that way. Yes, God has chosen us. Yes, we've been redeemed. Yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, we're eternally secure, but sin has consequences. We're still subject to God's discipline. So God says to Israel, I've chosen you amongst all the peoples of the earth because you are mine. It is only you that I have known. I will punish your iniquities. Brothers and sisters, God has the right to punish his people. He has the right to inflict judgment upon them. And not only does he have the right, but God also has the ability. That's point number two. God has the ability to punish his people. Verse three begins with what is essentially a set of rhetorical questions here. And so we'll read verses three through six. That says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Does a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Now again, this is a series of questions. And what these questions demonstrate is that the Lord does not threaten punishment in vain. These aren't empty threats. The Lord is not an all bark and no bite type of God, as the saying goes. He does indeed have the ability to inflict punishment on his people. Not only can he, he will. He can and he will. So verse 3 begins by asking this question. It says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Now, this is a really interesting question. And I believe that as we examine it, we, we find that this holds a great deal of significance for each of us. So I want you to think about something. Let's say I was planning to take a walk with Pastor Gabe, right? We're just going to go downtown on the Blackwater Creek and we're just going to take a walk together, right? Now, if we're planning to do that, the first thing that needs to happen is we need to communicate, right? There needs to be some sort of communication, whether it's an email, text message, phone call, whether we meet face-to-face -face and we say, hey, man, let's go for a walk, right? Then from there, we need to agree upon a date. We need to agree upon a time. We need to agree upon the location, right? Before we can walk together and even continue walking together, there must be agreement on these things, right? Not only that, but once we meet, we got to agree on the direction. I can't say, well, I'm going to head north on the trail. And he says, well, I'm going to head south on the trail because now we're going in different directions, right? Unless we meet together and we're unified in agreement, then we cannot walk together. That makes sense to everyone in here, right? Pretty simple. Got a couple of you with me. All right, got you. <clears throat> Pretty simple. 
So just as that's the case with man and man amongst our horizontal relationships, that's the case with God and man as well. And I want you to think about the implications here. You see, another word for agreement would be covenant, right? That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement between parties. So God had entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. He'd agreed to fellowship with them, to commune with them, for them to be his people and for him to be their God. But in order for them to walk together, right, to continue in fellowship together, they cannot walk contrary to God's way, right? They can't walk opposite of God's word. Listen, in order to walk with God, to have agreement with him or to have union with him, agreement is essential. In order to walk with God, to have communion with him, agreement is essential. It's required. It's necessary. You see, and God was at a place where he could no longer walk with Israel because of their sin. They were compromising the agreement, the covenant, infringing upon this. They weren't walking in step with the Lord's commands. One commentator says this as it pertains to this particular verse and walking with God. He says, if there is to be helpful and intimate companionship between two people, there must be profound agreement. And if I am to enjoy the companionship of the great God, with all that that companionship means of consoling and sheltering grace, if God and I are to walk together, we must be agreed. And my part of the agreement must be faithful and unconditional obedience to all his revealed will. I thought that was very helpful for us in this time to remember that in order to walk with God, we must be obedient to him. We must be in agreement with him. So brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves this question. Here's a challenge for us today to remember that we cannot truly walk with, fellowship, or commune with God if we are not living in accordance to his word. If you are living contrary to his commands, listen, I don't care what anybody tells you. If they tell you that you can live in contradiction to this and be in relationship with God, they've lied to you. They have lied to you. And Pastor Tyler talked about this a little bit last week. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 4, God indicts Judah for rejecting his law. But that indictment, that rebuke isn't exclusive to the nation of Israel. It extends to all those who claim the name of Christ but refuse to submit to his word. If you are not living in accordance to God's word, you cannot walk in fellowship with the Lord. And this is a great place for us to do a self-examination. For us to look inwardly, to take an honest inventory of our own lives. Are we people that submit to God's word? Is the Bible, the written, revealed word of God, our ultimate authority? Is the word of God what governs our lives? Is that the authority in your life? Is that what rules you? Or is it the word of man? Is it culture? Is it society? Is it the world and all of these other things? Or are we governed and living our lives in accordance to God's word? As we continue to look at this list of questions, what we see is that all of these questions have obvious answers. 
There are two necessary parts to each question that are logical correlations between the questions and their hypothetical responses. Now, we'll walk through these questions. We won't go into each one in deep detail just for the sake of time. But what I want us to do is look at these questions and understand the big picture of what's happening here, of what God is communicating, what he is pointing us towards through these questions. So the first question we just talked about, can two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Obviously, they cannot for obvious reasons. In verse 4, the next question, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? So, no, a lion only roars when they have prey in their sights, in their clutches. The lion roars as a means of warning and intimidation for that prey. So that's obvious, right? The correlation there. The lion roars because he has prey in his sights, right? Second half of verse four, does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Again, this lion isn't going to give forth his voice. He's not going to roar or cry out without cause. See, that's the point here. We can't overlook God's truth and what he's communicating to his people here. God is letting them know, I am not warning you in vain. These are not empty threats. His prophets speak and pronounce judgment and punishment with good cause because God's commissioned them to do so. He is not warning them of anything that he does not intend to bring to pass. Right? Verse five, does a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Obviously, unless there's a trap set, a bird can't get ensnared by it, right? That's an obvious correlation to make. And the thing is, that happens when a hunter intentionally sets a trap, right? Second half of verse 5, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Again, we have to understand that. Think about one of these bear traps, right? It's not just going to spring up from the ground unless there's some prey that triggers it, right? But that often happens, what, very unexpectedly. This is a bit of an aside as well, but for Israel, this punishment that was coming, they may act like it was unexpected, but God had taken plenty of time to warn them accordingly. Right? And that's why he says, man, the trap, it doesn't spring unless there's something that triggers it. Like I'm letting you know what is about to happen. I am warning you accordingly. Verse six is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid. Yes, they're afraid because they know what that means. This is referring to the custom of sounding the trumpet to warn the people of an imminent danger. So in those days, they would have watchmen on the walls or in the towers. And if an opposing army was coming to plunder that city, they would sound the trumpet to warn the people, to let them know what was about to happen. And again, as we've talked about, this is Amos sounding the trumpet of God's warning, warning these people of what is to come. And a good, again, that's a good and gracious thing. Don't miss that, that reality. Don't miss that. God sending Amos is his grace to them. Like, hey, I'm warning you of, about, of, of what's about to take place. So that's an extension of God's grace, his kindness towards his people. Again, because the purpose of him speaking through his prophets and pronouncing the guilt of his people, warning of this punishment that is to come, it's all for the purpose of repentance for restoration, for these people, God's people, to turn back to him. That's why the lion is roaring. That's why the trumpet has blast. 
to warn these people and draw them to repentance. Listen, here's a great application for those aspiring to be pastors, for those who believe that they've been called to the pulpit. That's the goal of true biblical preaching, to draw people to repentance, right? To sound the trumpet blast, to warn of this holy, righteous judge that is God and the wrath that is to come in hopes that God will work through the preaching of his word and that people would turn to God, that people would repent. They turn from their sin and turn to their creator and fling themselves upon the mercies of God. See, through the preaching of his word, the proclaiming of God's gospel of grace, the hope is that the lost would come to repentance. That's the purpose of preaching. That's the purpose of proclaiming God's truth. That's the reason God sends Amos to his people, that they would turn from their sin, turn to him. As we look at those first six questions, they're all really leading to question number seven, which is found in the second half of verse six, and it says this, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And this shouts of God's divine sovereignty. This lets us know that everything that happens is a result of God's hand by his sovereign authority and providence. Now, there are a lot of Christians who will wrestle with the text like this because it's very unsettling. It's difficult for a lot of believers. We often have a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact that it's supposed to be this good and loving and gracious God, but he would send disaster upon the world. He would send disaster upon this city. But the reality is when we read the scriptures, it's plainly communicated to us. Think about Noah and the flood. Think about the plagues that fell upon Egypt and Pharaoh. Right? Think about the wars, how God used his people to conquer and wipe out certain people to attain this promised land that he'd given to them. Right? That's all by God's design. That's all a work of God's providential hand. I know we can often wrestle with that, but I want you to consider a verse like Ecclesiastes 7.14 when we think about God's sovereignty. Right, and this is what it says. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. God has made the one as well as the other. Whether it's, and this would be very extremely applicable to uh, the nation of Israel because they were experiencing great prosperity. But they didn't know the calamity and the adversity was about to befall them. Say, so, hey man, God's responsible for both in his great sovereignty. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not saying that God is the author of evil, okay? That is not what we're saying. God is not the author of evil or sin. That would be an incredible contradiction to God's divine nature. Along with that, we also can't make a direct one-to-one correlation for every disaster that falls upon a city isn't necessarily God's judgment. So you can't, for example, look at uh, Hurricane Katrina and say, well, all the people in New Orleans must have been sinning, and that's why God sent that, that, that disaster upon them. That's not what we're saying here. But what I'm saying is when judgment falls upon a city, when this judgment comes upon Israel, it's not coincidence. It's not a natural disaster. It's not a chance happening. God has let them know this is by my hand. Judgment is coming upon you because I've deemed it to be necessary. Listen, we got to understand this text and what's happening here. This is Amos speaking to God's people, but this is the lion roaring. This is God warning his people of what is to come. 
And God's people should have known that God had every ability to carry out these threats. They should have known that God's miraculous power, look, they'd seen that on display again. He had cap- uh, rescued them from captivity. They should have understood the plagues, that, the power that God had. He displayed time and time again. They knew God's infinite capabilities. The Lord was sure to inform his people through his prophet that disaster was coming. But they must repent. They must turn to him. And it was coming by his hand. Verse 7 says this, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. This reminds us that nothing is coming upon man that hasn't already been revealed to him. At that day and time, God spoke through his prophets, right? How does God speak to us today? Right here. So there's nothing that is coming upon man that should be a surprise to us. God has clearly given us his counsel, his word. We know what to expect. And what does the Bible tell us? That a day of judgment is coming for every single human being, all of mankind, every man, woman, and child. A judgment day is coming. Verses like 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Acts 17.31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Matthew 12.36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Romans 2.16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Bible clearly warns us of judgment that awaits. God's word is intentional about informing us of that judgment day. See, just as Amos shouts the trumpet blast to warn this people, God's word is clearly warning us. We must heed that warning and repent and turn to God. God's openly revealed the wrath that is to come. In verse 8, it says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? I love this analogy of a lion. That God's word continuously describes him in this way. You see, just as a lion roars and strikes fear into the heart of his prey, this pronouncement, this warning on the nation of Israel should frighten these people. It should give them a healthy respect, a healthy fear and reverence for their great and glorious God. And this should move them to a place of repentance. And again, the whole point of this The whole reason that God warns them of this judgment is because he has the ability to enact it, to remind them. That's the whole purpose of these questions, these analogies, these correlations. Look, God's not going to warn you and then not do anything. That's not in his character. He's not going to warn them and tell them to turn and then not do anything. His warnings are not in vain. So just as his people, we understand, right, because we're God's people, He has the right to punish us. And as almighty God, he has the ability to punish us. Finally, number three, God has reasons to punish us. And we've really seen this as we've looked at chapters one and two, specifically in chapter two, we see God pronouncing the guilt of his people, right? Judah and Israel for their sins. 
And there the Lord deems his people deserving of his punishment and wrath. If we go back to verse 2 here in chapter 3, God says what? He says, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Now, I'm not going to spend time going back through all the specific sins. Right, Pastor Tyler went through that last week. But it is evident that God has good reason to aim his anger at his people. And we know that God's people would indeed face destruction. Right? They would meet the fate that he had promised them. However, one thing that we must remember is that God is gracious and merciful. So there is redemption. There is restoration. So rather than simply focusing on the reality of God's punishment and judgment, I wanted to close our time together this morning by highlighting God's grace and mercy infinitely displayed towards us. See, if we're all honest with ourselves, if we all do that honest and legitimate inventory of our own life, of our own lives, if we look inwardly and examine our hearts, we have to be honest and know that, hey, we've given God more than enough reasons to punish us. I know at least I have. I know my heart. I know I've sinned. I know that I have failed. But the glorious reality is that we serve a God that redeems and restores. And he's done that in the most gracious and incredible fashion through Christ Jesus. We are eternally secure. See, God had reason to reject Israel eternally. He could have dismissed them eternally from his presence. But he didn't because of this great covenant that he had made with him. He had made with them. Right? Nowadays, we, we listen to people talk a lot about justice, right? People mention justice a lot. Well, justice would demand that we all perish in eternity for hell, in hell. That's what justice demands, is that you spend an eternity separated from God in hell. If you want justice, that's justice. But man, God is so gracious. God is so merciful. The Lord has every reason to enact his divine judgment in this way. It's what we deserve as those who have rebelled against God. But God in his mercy, God in his grace has provided for us through Jesus Christ. If you go back to Genesis 3 and the fall of man, God speaks to the man and, and the woman and he talks about the one that would crush the head of the serpent. You see, this is foreshadowing. This is God uh, pronouncing the victor that is to come, this great covenant of deliverance for his people. And that victor, that deliverance comes through Jesus Christ. Again, brothers and sisters, the Lord has a million reasons to reject us and to wipe us away, to dismiss us from his presence forever. But I love Isaiah 55, 7, because it tells us that when we turn to the Lord, we find compassion and abundant pardon. See, when you turn to God, you don't find punishment, you find pardon. We find compassion, we find love, we find forgiveness. So rather than bringing his eternal judgment upon us, we are beneficiaries of God's grace. We are reconciled and forgiven. Because of that, we are able to be at peace with God, Romans 5.1 tells us. And this happens through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, as we finish our time 
here together this morning, I want to remind you of the hope that you have in Christ. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has been born again, washed under the blood of Christ. Yes, we talk a lot about punishment. We talk a lot about judgment. That's what the text is about. But I want to remind you of the hope and the freedom that you have in Christ today, that you are saved and secure eternally. That doesn't mean you won't face God's judgment or his punishment on this side, right? Again, we know that sin has consequences. We know that God disciplines the ones he loves. But man, in Christ, you are free. You are a benefit of this eternal covenant promise. So to the brothers and sisters, to the believers in this room, that should give you great encouragement today. And to anybody in this room that you're not a beneficiary of that covenant, you're not in that covenant relationship with God. I want to tell you that that's possible this morning. That you have that ability today. That in Christ Jesus... Surrendering your life to Christ, laying aside everything else, submitting to his lordship. That is how we enter into this great relationship with God. That's how we have this covenant promise from him. It's by submitting to the lordship of Christ Jesus. So if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, why don't you consider why? I want you to find somebody, one of our members, find me, Pastor Gabe, whoever, We would love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you about that. Because guess what? Here's the reality. Apart from being a part of that covenant, you're still under God's eternal judgment. His wrath is still aimed at you. And I don't say that to scare you. It's just the reality. It is what it is, as they say, right? That's the reality of the situation. Lest you be a beneficiary of this covenant, right? God's wrath is still aimed at you, eternally speaking. So my job as I stand here and preach this morning, as I proclaim the word of God, is to preach in a way that sounds the trumpet of warning and calls the lost to repentance. Pray that God would work through the teaching of his word and that believers would be encouraged and unbelievers would be challenged. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. God, we're thankful for the ability to be in relationship with you. God, we're thankful that uh, even though we may face reprove and discipline on this side, God, we are eternally saved in Jesus Christ. We are eternally secure. Father, we thank you for your covenant promises for, uh, God, how you've delivered us. God, that you didn't leave us on our own. You didn't leave us by ourselves to figure it out. But God, in your grace and mercy, you've made a way for us to be your own. God, we thank you for the reality of what it means to be chosen. God, I pray that that would move us to a place of humility, not a place of arrogance, not a place where we abuse your grace or just live however we want. God, that we would be moved to obedience by this glorious Savior that is Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. ask that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.